You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you live. Today on the show, Iran strikes back. The Islamic Republic responds to America's killing of its top general with missiles fired at bases housing American troops. A tit for tat. So is it now over? Iran appears to be standing down. Or have we just begun? The United States has to come to its senses. I'll talk to experts across the region about all that. The Ukrainian airliner and more. Also, Iran has now abandoned the nuclear deal. Are we back to nuclear brinksmanship and the dangers of a regional war? A great debate between Rule Mark Gorek and Trita Parson. Then, should the United States be pushing for democracy around the world in places like Iraq, even Iran? I'll talk to the eminent French philosopher Bernard-Henri Levy about this question, his fascinating documentary films on the region, and more. But first, here's my take. Three months ago, Donald Trump suddenly withdrew American forces from northern Syria that were in part thwarting Iran's efforts to dominate that country. His rationale was clear. Going into the Middle East is one of the worst decisions ever made in the history of our country. It's like quicksand. Well, last week, he dramatically escalated America's military engagement in the quicksand, ordering a strike on Iran's most important military leader and deploying thousands more troops. How to make sense of this Middle East policy? It actually gets more confusing around the same time that he was urgently withdrawing American troops from what he called this long, blood-stained sand, Trump sent 3,000 additional troops to Saudi Arabia. When asked why, he answered that the Saudis were paying good money for this deployment. And just a few weeks after announcing the Syria withdrawal, he reversed himself and left some troops in the north for one reason. We want to keep the oil. All clear now? After the killing last week of Qasem Soleimani, Trump warned that were Iran to attack any Americans or American assets, he would retaliate very fast and very hard. And yet, after Iran did attack two Iraqi bases housing American troops, Trump essentially did nothing. Iran appears to be standing down. Now, I'm glad Trump chose to de-escalate, but that doesn't change the fact that he reversed himself yet again. You see, the problem with Trump's foreign policy is not any specific action. The killing of Soleimani could be justified as a way to respond to Iranian provocations. But this move, like so much of Trump's foreign policy, was impulsive, reckless, unplanned, and inconsistent. And as usual, the chief impact is chaos and confusion. Trump did not bother to coordinate with the government of Iraq on whose territory the attack was perpetrated. 
after the Iraqi government then protested and voiced a desire to have American troops leave Iraq, he belligerently threatened to sanction the country and stay put until it paid the U.S. billions of dollars for an airbase. The result? A policy that could well have produced a marked diminution of Iran's power might instead trigger the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq, which has been the chief Iranian objective in the region for years. This is not an isolated instance. Trump began his policy toward North Korea, threatening fire and fury like the world has never seen. He ridiculed its leader Kim Jong-un as rocket man. Soon, he was declaring his unabashed affection for Kim. We fell in love. And making unprecedented concessions by meeting with Kim three times. Trump kept hoping for a deal, and despite every indication that Kim was unwilling, kept up his one-sided love affair, minimizing the North Korean regime's record of almost unsurpassed brutality and terror. Donald Trump does not have a foreign policy. He has a series of impulses, isolationism, unilateralism, bellicosity, some of them completely contradictory. One might surge at any particular moment, triggered usually by Trump's sense that he might look weak or foolish. They're often unleashed without any consultation, and then his yes-men line up to defend him, supporting the president's every move with North Korean-style enthusiasm, no matter how incoherent. The United States has made mistakes in foreign policy. But over the past several decades, it has by and large had a carefully thought-through process of decision-making, involving consultation with allies, and has tried to maintain consistency and coherence in its policy. That hard-won reputation is now being squandered in arena after arena around the globe. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. You are watching angry protesters in Tehran on Saturday. Those chants you hear say, death to the supreme leader. It is the latest reaction to a tumultuous 10 days in Iran, starting with America's killing of Iran's top general. Then on Wednesday, Iran retaliated with missiles launched at bases in Iraq, housing Americans. That same day, Iran shot down inadvertently, it says, a Ukrainian airliner killing all 176 passengers and crew. These protests are in response to that incident. President Trump, Mike Pompeo, and Bibi Netanyahu all immediately voiced support for the protesters. Will the anger on the streets of Tehran amount to anything? Joining me now in Tehran, Mohammad Marandi, a professor at the University of Tehran. In Baghdad, Ghaed Abdullahad, a reporter for The Guardian. And in Abu Dhabi, Mina Al-Oraibi, the editor-in-chief of the UAE-based newspaper, The National. Professor Morandi, let me start with you and ask you, how do we understand these protests, which seem uh, dramatic in that they specifically talk about the regime, uh, the Islamic Republic, about the supreme leader, um, and seem to be animated by a sense that the regime should not have done, uh, should not have been engaging in a, in a warfare without closing down the airspace if it knew it was firing missiles? 
should not have lied, disclaiming responsibility for this, should not have been as slow to be transparent with the information. Uh, and all of it has produced this fairly dramatic reaction against the Islamic Republic and the government. Well, I think it's obvious that many people are upset that the government or the uh, armed forces delayed the announcement that the Iranians mistakenly downed the plane. And they should have said it earlier that there was a high possibility until they, and instead of waiting until their three-day investigation concluded. But, uh, and the protests uh, that are on the streets, uh, there are different types of anger. Some people are simply angry that the government did this. Then there are those who are on the streets who are calling for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. There are always people like that. But I think it's very a bad mistake for Western countries to hedge their bets on such, such a group. When we saw the five to seven million people on the streets of Tehran alone last week commemorating the uh, uh, Qasem Soleimani, General Qasem Soleimani, I think he who symbolizes the Islamic Republic of Iran and symbolizes all that much of the Western political establishment hates about the Islamic Republic of Iran, I think that that shows a great deal about where Iranian sentiments lie. Uh, Red Abdullah, looking at it from Iraq, um, is this one more instance of how sectarian uh, the Middle East has become? In other words, in Iraq, we saw similar kinds of protests, some, of, some people celebrating Soleimani's death, some people, uh, you know, opposing it. And is it just, to put it very bluntly, the Shia uh, are celebrating the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, you know, I mean, sorry, the Sunnis are celebrating Soleimani's death and the Shia are mourning it? Well, Farid, I, I'll have to disagree here. I don't think this is a sectarian moment in the Middle East. In Iraq, we saw demonstrations on Friday, and these demonstrations were calling both for Iran and the United States to leave Iraq outside this conflict. I mean, if we step back uh, a, a tiny bit and we see that Iraq is in a very post-sectarian moment out there, We've seen demonstrations taking place over the last three months. These are post-sectarian demonstrations. These are Shia masses opposing the ruling Shia political parties allied with Iran and the Shia militias allied with Iran. So, no, I would disagree. I don't think there is a, a, a sectarian reaction in Iraq. There is a, what I can paraphrase as an Iraqi national reaction. The majority of the people in the streets of Baghdad, they oppose both American and Iranian intervention in Iraqi political affairs and military affairs. Uh, Mina, what does it look like to you when, when you think about the fact that the UAE has been part of the co a fairly strong anti-Iranian coalition? Um, is there a sense, you know, it seemed as though initially after the killing of Soleimani that even the government of Saudi Arabia and the UAE were cautious. They did not want this to spiral out of control. Well, the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been quite cautious for months now. Let's not forget there was an attack on Saudi Aramco in September. Previous to that, there was an attack on oil tankers, and all evidence indicates that Iran was behind those attacks. And still the UAE and Saudi Arabia said, we do not want an escalation, we do not want to see a war. Uh, people in the Gulf are monitoring closely the protest movement in Iraq and also in Iran. 
not to say that one side in Iraq, for example, is representative of the entire country, but there has been a nationalist movement that, as Raith was saying, is talking about an Iraqi national identity, and that's something important to the Arab world. Um, fascinating. Um, stay with us. When we come back, I'm going to ask Professor Morandi what Iran's next move is in this extraordinary game. And we are back with Mohammad Morandi in Tehran, Ghaid Abdullah Had in Baghdad, and in Abu Dhabi, Mina al Uh Professor Morandi, let me ask you, what is Iran's next move here? It, um, it seemed to signal that it, it was done. It now faces the pressure because of the fallout from the uh, Ukrainian airliner. Um, it also is facing a very bad economy. Is the, is the uh, Iranian government very much on the defensive, or do you expect some kind of asymmetrical response in the future. Well, I think by striking the U.S. Air, the U.S. military base, and the fact that all the missiles got through the air defense systems and all of them hit the base and created huge damage, that was sending a signal to the United States that Iran can strike hard. And I think the fact that the Iranians didn't target American soldiers was uh, important. The Iranians were warning the United States that this confrontation is, uh, we don't want to escalate, but if you do, this is what we can do. And I think it's also a warning that all U.S. bases in the region, therefore, are vulnerable. And I think it's especially uh, important for those countries who are hosting U.S. bases, because if those bases are used in any conflict, the Iranians have stated that those states will be deemed as hostile. And therefore, countries like the United Arab Emirates, if they are seen to be involved, uh, the Iranians will strike them hard, and uh, the Emirates won't last. So the Iranians just simply want the Americans to stop threatening the country. Trump has repeatedly said threatened obliterating Iran. He's talked about destroying Iran's cultural heritage. He's engineering a uh, war against the Iranian economy, trying to make Iranians suffer as much as possible, even preventing uh, Iran from importing medicine, pressuring countries not to allow their uh, food and grain to be ex exported to Iran. So the United States is seen as extraordinarily hostile and to be blunt, inhumane uh, when it comes to Iran. So this is a part of Iran's pushback. Uh, let me ask you about the extraordinary confrontation between Iraq and the United States. Uh, the Iraqi prime minister and parliament have now asked uh, for American troops to withdraw. The Trump administration has essentially said no. Uh, it has both simply, you know, kind of said we're not leaving, but then also said if you were to uh, persist in this, we're going to essentially uh, slap uh, sanctions on Iraq, a particular technical kind of not allowing Iraq to use an account that, uh, that from which it gets a lot, a lot of its oil revenues. This seems an extraordinary confrontation between two countries that were allies. What happens if the Americans just don't go? I mean, Farid, first, there is no love lost between the Iraqi people and the U.S. Army. I mean, yes, the Americans did help Iraq profoundly in the war against ISIS. But we have to remember it is the Americans who are blamed for the current political uh, elite that is ruling Iraq. The, the Americans are blamed for the corruption that is, that is dominant in Iraq. 
Having said that, at the same time, the Iraqis do not want to be dragged into a middle of a conflict with the United States. I mean, it's outrageous to hear Trump talking about the Iraqis having to pay for these bases as if they chose to be occupied first place. But then uh, the decision of the parliament, I mean, in the Friday demonstrations in Baghdad, many of the people, I mean, the majority were carrying a placard saying the parliament does not represent me because no one consulted Iraqis about the decision to expel American troops. And if we've seen, I mean, I've earlier said this, we're in a post-sectarian system, but that conflict between America and Iran, as it was seen in the parliament, the optics are very sectarian. The Kurds, the Sunnis boycotted the session. I was in Ramadi where people say, no, we don't want the Americans to leave because we don't want to end up. I mean, again, a war between the United States and Iran will not happen in Tehran or in D.C. It will happen in Baghdad. It will happen in Basra. And this is the main feeling among the Iraqi people. Uh, we don't want to fight America. We don't want to fight Iran. One other thing which I would like to add quickly. In Iraq, we have the can something I, called I, the PNU. Can I quickly, can I first, can I get to Mina? Because I do need to get a, a regional perspective here. Mina, the, the argument, but the UAE and Saudi uh, places like that have made is that Soleimani used proxies to spread Iran's influence ar across the region. Do you think the killing of Soleimani ends that? No, the killing of Soleimani alone doesn't end it, but I wouldn't call it influence. This is militia rule. What Iran does in the region is support armed groups, non-state actors that take away from the sovereignty of countries like Iraq, Lebanon, Syria and beyond. So this isn't about influence or cultural influence. It's actually about militia rule. And I just want to clarify one thing. There are no American bases in Iraq. These are Iraqi bases that the Americans are using. And the bases that were struck were Iraqi bases. And Iraqi troops were equally put in danger, not only American troops. And that's the fear. It's Iraq and it's other Arab countries that get caught in this crossfire. Another point on the Iraqi parliament, Raif made the point that it was not all political parties present in parliament. There's even questions about that resolution that was passed because it wasn't electronic voting. So we don't even know if that vote was accurate. The current prime minister is a caretaker prime minister, so he doesn't even have the legality to push forward on trying to get the Americans out. You've had Hassan Nasrallah speak from Lebanon and say that we're going to push out the Americans from the region at a time when Lebanon is suffering from a crippling economic crisis. And so the Iranian proxies, whether it's through Nasrallah or Kataib Hezbollah inside of Iraq or others, are basically willing to crush their own countries, their own nations, in order to push forward a foreign agenda, which is an Iranian agenda. Fascinating to get voices from the region on this. Next on GPS, we will return to Washington and ask, is the killing of General Soleimani an American masterstroke or America fueling tensions in the region? A debate when we come back. There seem to be more questions raised than answers given so far on President Trump's decision to kill General Qasem Soleimani. The evidence offered by the White House of an imminent threat has not been forthcoming. The story has been shifting. Was Soleimani targeting the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad? Was he targeting four American embassies in the region? What happened to those plans? Plus, now 176 people have died in what some have called collateral damage from the Soleimani killing. So, was the president's decision the right one? Joining me now, 
Rule Mark Direct, a former Middle Eastern specialist at the CIA, now a senior fellow at the Foundation for De- the Defense of Democracies, and Trita Barsi, the executive vice president at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Um, Rule, uh, let me ask you, I think you have come out publicly in the past, uh, actually in favor of specifically killing Qasem Soleimani. Do you think this was done uh, strategically and in the right way? Because I know that in general, presumably you actually approve of the the killing. Yeah, I I think it was the correct thing to do. We should have done it years ago. I mean, that man is responsible uh, for the deaths of lots of Americans. General Petraeus thinks that figure is up around 600. I suspect it's low. Uh, I think if you kill Americans, your life is forfeit. The United States may choose the time and place to exact uh, that, but uh, that man has spread sectarian bloodshed throughout the Middle East. He's tried to radicalize Shiite communities. He supported Sunni jihadists. He's been quite ecumenical in his taste, was quite ecumenical in his taste to spread mayhem and to hurt the United States. So it's high time we stop turning our cheek and uh, take him out. Uh, Trita Barsi, what you, what, what's your reaction? Well, I think the American public clearly uh, do not believe that this has made them safe. The latest polls show that only 25% believe that this has made them more safe. 52% believe that it has not. And 55 or 56% disapprove of how Trump has handled this. I think their instincts are right because their instincts are that this will not only make America less safe, it will also entangle America more in the Middle East at a moment when the American public wants to have the troops come home. They don't see a strategic reason or utility to continue these endless wars. And what Trump has done here is actually going to make it much more difficult for the United States to be able to leave the region. Instead, it's going to get more entangled in these endless wars, already two going on. And now he's risking to start a third one. So based on that, I think it's really difficult to see that this is serving U.S. national interest at this moment. And it has not made America more safe. Uh, Rule, let me ask you to respond to uh, Trader Parsi's uh, recent essay. Or, um, I can't re- recall exactly where it was. But it was a very interesting point. He said, is it time for us to, con- to, to acknowledge that the United States' involvement in the Middle East has caused more instability, tension, and war than uh, solving uh, regional tensions, instability, and war? Uh, if you look at it on the face of it, American involvement in the Middle East, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, the various interventions, it does seem like um, it certainly has not quietened things down. Let me put it that way. Well, I mean, I, again, I, I think the primary force driving uh, the sectarian bloodshed in the region uh, has been the Islamic Republic. It hasn't been the United States. I, I suppose you could have fond memories of Saddam Hussein and the hundreds of thousands of people that he slaughtered, but I I don't. Uh, I think the United States, if you can fault the United States for anything, it it does, uh, it it doesn't always want to stay the course. And uh, I don't think we're going to run from the Middle East. I think we should have learned that after 9-11. And I think it's high time we realize that the primary driver of instability uh, is uh, is Iran. Uh, I mean, I think it's it is amusing uh, and important to note that. Let, let uh, me ask you, Mark. Let me ask you, Mark. Um, just one second. Um, is it Iran, or has it been Sunni jihadists? I mean, 9/11 was not perpetrated by Iran, but by uh, Saudi Arabian and Egyptian Sunni fundamentalists who are actually enemies of Iran. 
Well, I mean, Qasem Soleimani in, uh, in, in particular was operationally responsible for creating Shiite militias in the model of Lebanese Hezbollah. They have somewhere upwards of 50,000 of these folks now spread out through the Middle East. Uh, he encouraged uh, sectarianism, radicalization of Shiite communities. They also supported Sunni jihadists. My God, I mean, they... Uh, a Revolutionary Guard Corps was sending weaponry to Sunni jihadists in Iraq. They were sending weaponry to Sunni jihadists in Afghanistan. The Taliban was receiving weaponry. The notion that uh, it is um, Sunni jihadists who's responsible for this I'm sorry, we have, a, we have a little bit of time, and I just want to give Trita the last word. Well, look, uh, it's not about whether Iran also is uh, a destabilizing actor or the idea that only one actor could be destabilizing. Unfortunately, you have several destabilizing actors in the region. The question we have to ask ourselves, has the over-militarized American dominance of the Middle East made America safer and made the Middle East more stable? The answer to that question, I think, is quite clear. It has not worked, and we should be pursuing other paths instead of just doubling down on something that has been devastating to the Middle East, regardless of what the Iranians are doing, and they're doing a lot of bad things as well, and also made America less safe. If we're actually going to be pursuing U.S. national interests, we should not organize it around the principle that the most important thing for the United States is revenge against Iran. That is not a policy or an orientation that will make America better off. This is a very important debate, and we will return to it, and I'm sorry we're out of time, but thank you both very much. Next on GPS, we're going to switch to, uh, subjects. There is a lot of hand-wringing in America about the power that big technology companies wield over us, our brains, our lives. Americans ought to look to the East to see what may be a rather frightening future, the new trend coming out of the East when we come back. Now for a What in the World segment. Elizabeth Warren wants to break them up. The FTC wants to hold them accountable. A growing chorus accuses them of damaging democracy. America is in the midst of an unprecedented furor over the unchecked power of its tech companies. But the problems in America may actually be overshadowed overseas. Take, for example, the leading Chinese social media and messaging app, WeChat, a platform with more than one billion users. It's popular beyond China's borders with the Chinese diaspora, and it is a breeding ground for fake news that has proven uniquely difficult to monitor. Look at Australia. As the Australian Broadcasting Company reported, in the run-up to elections in May, WeChat saw a flurry of messages of dubious origins linking the Labour Party to a massive influx of refugees. One post even claimed that Labour, if elected, would give refugees luxury apartments with views of the water upon arrival. And in the U.S., researchers have linked WeChat and the fake news and half-truths spread in group chats there to the falling support among Chinese Americans for affirmative action, as Hua Su writes in The New Yorker. WeChat lends itself to misinformation because, as with WhatsApp, it's hard to track down the origins of many posts which are forwarded from group to group taking on a life of their own. It's also easy to register a so-called official account and post public content, and some of these accounts are run by bloggers and citizen journalists. As a report by the Tao Center for Digital Journalism notes, those accounts can be as influential as mainstream media, and many are nakedly partisan. That's all apart from the privacy concerns, particularly inside China, 
where WeChat serves as a payments, messaging, food ordering, and ride-hailing app all at once. That allows its parent company, Tencent, to collect a dizzying amount of data from users. And data is, of course, where the money is. This monetizing of data is at the heart of what the social psychologist Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. Capitalism based on watching your every move. In China, as Quartz notes, the government can easily request and access data from tech companies, so surveillance capitalism mixes seamlessly with surveillance government. And as the New York Times has reported, the government has been deploying facial recognition software in its vast security apparatus to profile and control the Uyghurs, a Muslim ethnic minority. In various parts of the country, the Times reports, security cameras outfitted with the software scan thousands of faces looking for ethnic Uyghurs. Police have put together face image databases from criminal and other records, and they use these systems to track Uyghurs' movements. It's an exercise in mass surveillance and social control that is breathtaking. But the dangerous combination of artificial intelligence and policing is not limited to authoritarian regimes. Look at India, the world's largest democracy, which is planning one of the world's largest facial recognition systems to aid police departments across the country. Authorities would be able to automatically cross-check images from security cameras with a database of known criminals, missing children, and passport photos. Data privacy activists in India have revolted. They worried that the system could be used for social policing and would trample on individual rights and privacy rights. They feared would be linked to India's massive biometric database known as Aadhaar, which holds the personal details of 1.2 billion people. The government has denied that it plans to link Aadhaar to the new system and has sought to de-emphasize the system's role in fighting crime. But worries remain, especially since the Indian government is increasingly using technology or the access to it as a lever of social control by shutting down the internet in response to political unrest in several states. This week, the Indian Supreme Court declared the indefinite internet shutdown in Kashmir is illegal. As is often happening these days, hot new trends now come from the emerging markets, including ones that are deeply troubling. Next on GPS, weeks like these bring up big philosophical questions about the use of Western power. Luckily enough, I have a great philosopher who thinks about just those questions joining me next. Back in a moment with Bernard-Henri Levy. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. I want to get out of the Middle East. That was President Trump in October explaining his decision to withdraw American troops from northeastern Syria. The president has long opposed American intervention in the Middle East, and many around the world agree with him. But my next guest makes a different case. Bernard-Henri Levy is the eminent French writer and philosopher who has directed four documentary films that demonstrate how intervention by the world's great powers can stop nightmarish atrocities. And on the flip side what the bad guys will do if the good guys can't be bothered. You can catch screenings in New York Sunday night and Los Angeles next weekend. Bernard, let me ask you, this is an extraordinary uh, collection of, of your work, and it, it reminds one how much time and effort you have spent in all these places. Um, 
what motivated you? Why did you, did, did, did one thing lead to another or did you always have this sense that the West should be more involved in helping these places? I had four times in my life the sense that we should be there, that there was a huge violation of human rights, that we have a duty, America with its special destiny, France with its sense of universal and that we should not drop these people flat. It started in Bosnia in, uh, during the siege of Sarajevo. I saw this city bombed for weeks and years, and then in Libya. And it was the same during the Arab Spring, and it is the same now with uh, Kurdistan. I devoted two films to the fight of the Kurds, Peshmerga and then the Battle of Mosul. And when I see your president, announcing in last October that he decides to withdraw again. It's so, it never happened in the, in the military history of democracies to betray an ally, to betray those with whom you did fight shoulder to shoulder against ISIS, because this is the Kurds. This is, the, they were your and ours more reliable, valiant uh, ally. And we did abandon them. So let me ask you, though, the question people ask often is, we go into these places, we spend all this time, money, treasure, and it's all a mess. Um, look at Libya, where you advocated so strongly the, the removal of Gaddafi. Look at Iraq with Saddam Hussein. That, you know, good intentions are not enough. The outcome is always bad, messy, the opposite of what, what we wanted. Good intentions has has, uh, are not enough, of course. We need also consistency. We need also continuity. Uh, but mess is not a fatality. If we had remained in Libya, remained, not as a colonial power, but if we had helped... Uh, stay engaged. Stay engaged, help a, a, a proper Libyan army to emerge, uh, help some uh, um, uh, civil servants to be shaped, and so on. It would have been much better. Look at, for example, Kurdistan. Really, I'm back from there. I was a few days ago in Rojava and in KRG. This, we have an example of people, uh, um, uh, people in the Middle East, Muslim, pious, and Democrat, practicing human rights, matching with our values. So the mess is not a fatality. These... Uh, Kurdish ladies and, and men uh, do fight for themselves and for us, for their own families and for our values. And they, they do that with such... This is what I show in my movies. In my four movies at the Quad, I show two things. How it is in the DNA, alas, of democracies to abandon their friends, not to, not to be brotherly enough, and how, in the case of the Kurds and of the people of Sarajevo, you can have brilliant people emerging from mess, from night and from chaos and building something which looks like a democracy. Do you think there's another thing going on here, which is there is everywhere the rise of nationalism? And nationalism says America first, Turkey first, you know, uh, Russia first. And what you are trying to do is one of the age-old challenges and tasks of an intellectual to remind us that we are all human beings, that the Kurds and the, and the Bosnians and, you know, 
Muslims and Hindus and Christians are all, they're all, all one. This is one of the links between my four films. Sure, brotherhood, fraternity, and what was called in my youth, internationalism. I believe in internationalism. But it is not only. The other link between my four films is that even in terms of national interest for us Americans or French, it is worth helping democracy abroad. Look at what is happening today. Trump decided to abandon the Kurds. What happened immediately? Reinforcement of Bashar al-Assad. Putin transformed into a sort of peacemaker. Iran, Iran, which is supposed to be your enemy, filling the void in Baghdad, in Damascus, in Lebanon, building its dreamt Ark, Shia Ark. So in terms of national interest, America first means America weak. America first means America on the retreat. America uh, disavowing its own values and exceptionalism. I believe in the shining city upon the hill. I believe in that. I believe in the great nation which was welcoming to all the afflicted and suffering. I know. And I traveled so much. In all the places I went, I saw how they look in, Bos- in Sarajevo, in Kurdistan, in, in Arab world, they look at America like a light at the end of a tunnel. What a bad policy to discourage this hope. What a bad policy to give a slap uh, on the face of all of these afflicted people who are our natural friends. So in terms of brotherhood, but also in terms of national interest, we are committing huge mistakes. Bernard-Henri Levy, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Farid. And we will be back. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif told CNN that the U.S. blocked his visa request to attend Thursday's U.N. Security Council meeting in New York. The State Department has not confirmed that. It brings me to my question. When it comes to people conducting U.N. business, the U.N. headquarters agreement permits the U.S. to refuse visas for whom? A, anyone? B, diplomats from countries that have no relations with the U.S.? C, people who pose a national security threat to the U.S.? Or D, no one? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Stephen Kinzer's All the Shah's Men. As the Trump administration keeps up the pressure on Iran and many wonder whether its goal is regime change, here is a superb gripping account of the 1953 CIA-sponsored coup in Iran against the democratically elected leader there and how so much bad blood has flown from that original American effort at regime change. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is D, the 1947 agreement which established the seat of the UN in the United States requires the U.S. to issue a visa for anyone conducting official U.N. business. But when Congress approved the agreement, it did add a rider specifying that the U.S. retained complete power to safeguard its own security. Congressional caveat notwithstanding, the U.N. is the leading forum for international dialogue, and it seems to me that Washington is abusing its position by keeping diplomats out. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. 